1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, and welcome back to New Books and World Affairs, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Maeda Prasanna, the host of the channel. Today, we're very fortunate to be joined by Professor Rajan Menon. Professor Menon holds Ann Bernard Bernard's Spitzer Chair in Political Science at the City College of New York and is a Senior Research Scholar at the Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies at Columbia University. Today we're here to discuss his latest book, The Conceit of Humanitarian Interventions, published by Oxford University Press. Rajan, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Mehta. Thank you so much for inviting me.
2: I must say that I was rather intrigued by a portfolio because I've, I've seen a number of books and periodicals written on the Soviet Union, Cold War, Ukraine, and Russia today. And suddenly we have a book on humanitarian intervention. So I think we should start by you telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book.
1: I'm happy to do that. So I started my career at Vanderbilt University, Nashville, Tennessee, and taught there for close to a decade. And then I moved to Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, which is about 100 miles west of New York City. But during most of that time, I was living in New York, so I was commuting back and forth. There's a reason why I'm telling you this. So I was at Lehigh for 25 years, but toward the end, I got tired of commuting, and I took the job at the City University of New York, really not knowing much about CCNY, even though it's just a few blocks up from where I live, and I've been there since 2010. It's in many ways very different from the Duke private university that I've I've taught at. Now, in my early career at Vanderbilt and carrying forward to a good chunk of my time at Lehigh, I was known as what you might call a Soviet or Russian specialist to the extent that anyone knows enough about the Soviet Union or Russia to call themselves a specialist. And in fact, I worked on a fairly narrow area in what was then known as Soviet studies. That is the connection between Russian-Soviet military power and Russian foreign policy. So my first book was entitled Soviet Power and the Third World, and it asks basically three questions. Was Soviet military doctrine being modified so that Europe and the Warsaw Pact and the deterrence and warfighting relationship with NATO was no longer the central focus and was not broadening to include the so-called Third World. This was a question that came to the fore after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979, but even before that with the interventions in Angola and the Horn of Africa. So that is what I spent a lot of time doing. I also looked at other things, such as the relationship between China and the Soviet Union and thereafter Russia, looking at the military dimension. So the Cold War then ended, and as a friend of mine jokingly said to me, well, what's happened is that the object of your research has disappeared before your eyes. He was, in a sense, correct, because nobody saw the collapse of the Soviet Union. And even those who thought it would happen said it would happen for the wrong reasons. So Andrey Amalryk, the Soviet dissident, said it would happen as a result of a war between China and India, China and Russia, excuse me, China and the Soviet Union. But in point of fact, in 1989-91, the period when the Soviet collapse unfolded, relations between Beijing and Moscow were actually on the upswing and improving in a significant way. So nobody saw this coming, and although there may be people walking around now saying they predicted it, nobody did, not even people who lived in the Soviet Union. The other thing that was surprising about it is it happened relatively bloodlessly. Who would have thought that the Soviet Union that intervened repeatedly in Eastern Europe to prop up communist regimes facing rebellion in Hungary and and, Czechoslovakia and Poland would have allowed Eastern Europe to, as it were, go free? So the Soviet Union collapsed and the Russian Federation, the largest successor state of the Soviet Union, became the object of most people's focus. And I then really changed my focus to Central Asia and the Caucasus, the Caucasus being the region between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, Azerbaijan, Armenia, Georgia, but within Russia, the North Caucasus, including the troubled uh, Russian Republic of Chechnya. And I worked on that for a while, and my interest there was to see whether hydrocarbon economies, that is, economies that rely largely on oil and natural gas, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, and Azerbaijan, followed a certain trajectory where corruption, the swelling of the state, the reluctance to reform became almost pathological because it was then a debate about what happens to oil-rich countries. Do they become more like Norway? Do they become more like Nigeria? And I'm about to finish um, <laughs> the, the question you asked me. But at the time, there were broader issues relating to U.S. foreign policy, the unipolar moment, how long would it last? What was the future of U.S. Cold War alliances? And a book I wrote in 2007 called The End of Alliances raised the question, what is now the utility of these alliances that the United States had created and become comfortable with and that had been? almost stars for American foreign policy for a generation. So NATO above all, but also the alliances with South Korea and Japan. And I can talk about that book if you want me to, but in the interest of time, let me just move forward. I then switched back to the Soviet Union slash Russia slash Eastern Europe because of the Ukraine crisis of 2014, from which the U.S.-Russian relationship has never quite recovered, and with a co-author, a friend of mine, Eugene Rumor at the Carnegie Endowment, I wrote a book called Ukraine Crisis. And the Humanitarian Intervention book came after that, and we can talk about that particularly. That represents an even bigger change in my research trajectory. So let me put it this way. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, my research interests have shifted dramatically. And at the moment, I actually am doing much, much less about Russia than I used to and in my popular writing for the general public, uh, it's is published in magazines, I actually am writing a lot about internal American problems, be it suicide, be it child poverty, be it the effect of the pandemic on various classes and ethnic groups and so on. So I've become in a sense maybe a jack of all trades and a master of none. So that's the that's the <laughs> brief answer to the question.
2: Professor, that's incredibly interesting. Thank you for taking us on that journey. It's interesting that you mentioned uh, the unipolar movement, and because I think that that's like the premise to the thesis of your book. Um, because you describe the conditions in the 90s that made intervention possible then. So, could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yes. So because of the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was a widespread consensus on two things, I would say. One is that the main competitor that had made for a bipolar world, that is a world in which there were two powers that were overwhelmingly, in most respects, head and shoulders above other states, that was called Bipolarity, to distinguish it from the psychological disease, Bipolarity in IR theory, as you well know, means that. And the, the collapse of the Soviet Union left as it were only one pole, purely, and that was the United States. And so Charles Krauthammer, the late columnist for the Washington Post, wrote a celebrated article called The Unipolar Moment. And that term and the thesis of that article took hold. And Krautheimer's thesis was essentially first that the United States, for the first time, had unrivaled global power, and that it should use this moment with unapologetic determination to shape a liberal world order, that it had a chance in a sense to remake the world. Now, this idea very quickly migrated into international relations scholarship and there was a discussion about is it really about unipolar world how do we know how long would it remain a unipolar world but those who believed in unipolarity went much further so you will recall frank fukuyama's celebrated article the end of history yeah followed then by a book that i think actually is somewhat less interesting than the article itself but frank is a very erudite and intelligent and thoughtful person and he propounded an idea that's often misunderstood by the end of history he didn't mean that history would stop and no new things would happen because that would be absurd he didn't mean that nor did he mean when he said that the age of liberal dominance had arrived that democracy would spread throughout the world he made a rather different point that in the war of ideas how should societies arrange themselves? What should the world look like? Which set of ideas represented the best hope for human beings' liberation and fulfillment? That liberalism, given the collapse of Soviet communism and various forms of Marxism having less appeal, he thought, that liberalism had no rivals anymore. The war of ideas liberalism had triumphed. And he even wrote in his book about the problem of the last man, that is, would liberals realize that there was nothing worth fighting for anymore, because the battle was over. Now, Frank's thesis had a tremendous effect on the human rights movement and later on people who would become champions of humanitarian intervention, because Krauthammer's point about the unrivaled power of the United States and Frank's point about the triumph of liberalism led them to believe that whereas in the Cold War, dirty compromises had to be made in the interests of political exigency with various dictatorial regimes, and whereas the United States periodically talked about human rights but didn't have the leeway to act on That premise, because of the rivalry with the Soviet Union, that now it was free and clear to promote liberalism unabashedly, and that by extension, liberalism meant that human beings, wherever they lived, had one basic right, well, perhaps several, but one basic one, and that is the right not to be slaughtered by their own governments. Now, this was an important point, because if you look at the history of the world since certainly 1945, and ask yourself, have people been killed more in wars among states or wars within states? It's not even a close call. Paradoxically, the state that is supposed to protect people has also been its biggest danger and threat. And there are many examples of this, as you know, from the the Cambodian mass murder of between 1975 and 1978, down through Rwanda, and the list is, is, is endless. And so out of this grew the doctrine of humanitarian intervention, which essentially argued that a state could not, with impunity and hiding down the doctrine of sovereignty, massacre its citizens, and that, quote, the international community was duty-bound to come to the assistance of those who were being slaughtered, not initially militarily, but militarily as a last resort. And then humanitarian intervention arrived on the scene and it became uh something of a cottage industry. I mean, the explosion of books and articles and conferences, and as you know very well, being a student of this, was profuse. And so I got interested in this, but there's another story about why I got interested in this. So that's kind of the setup. That led us from the collapse of the Soviet Union to the unipolar world to the end of history. And you will also remember one other thing, that is the full-throated P to globalization, the encomium that it was now the way that people would organize themselves economically. So there's was a counterpart to Frank's argument at the political level. A book that epitomized this was Thomas Friedman's bestseller, Lexus to the Olive Tree. We're now in a period when globalization isn't being looked at much more skeptically, but the, the, the prognosis about political liberalism and economic globalization created this heady ethos that almost anything was possible now, and this was a unique moment for the United States and its Western partners to reshape the world in, in, in substantial ways that they hadn't been able to do before.
2: Absolutely, Professor. Um, and like you said, the, the literary canon on the subject is incredibly vast. I know that when I first got into it, I was overwhelmed because it's so difficult to navigate the many narratives. And I think you do an excellent job of explaining that landscape. Um, but how do you, like, I know that um, other scholars would probably maybe classify your work as a contrarian's work. Um, in the subject, but where? how do you think your work fits in the literary canon? And have you always looked at the subject in this way or have your views evolved over time?
1: So I do cast a critical eye, and I certainly, you, you said I'm looked at as a critic. Somewhat less kind words have been used to describe my position. But if I might, could I just take a moment to tell you why I stumbled on this topic of humanitarian intervention.
2: Absolutely. Please go ahead, Professor.
1: So it was a book kind of it was the book equivalent of the accidental tourist. And I I didn't set out to write a book. I didn't say, okay, now I'm going to write a book on humanitarian intervention. And here's how it happened. I was sitting in my office in at Lehigh University one day and the phone rang and it on the phone I believe was Gareth Evans. Gareth was the Foreign Minister of Australia back in the seventies and maybe into the eighties. And then he became the head of the International Crisis Group. It's a nonprofit that studies conflict around the world and writes absolutely superb field reports. Gareth took this what a by what it, until then been this fairly sleepy outfit and put it on the map in a way that only Gareth could do. He's a remarkably smart and driven and unbelievably impressive person. So he and I kind of got to know one another. And by the time this phone call happened, Gareth had become famous for something else. He was famous for a doctrine called the Responsibility to Protect. And you know this, but if your listeners don't, it is by far the most cogent blueprint for how to carry out humanitarian intervention, prefaced by a philosophical statement of why it was necessary. So at the time, Gareth was setting up a Responsibility to Protect, or R2P, as it's known, center in New York. And he said to me, you know, I, I want you to be the executive director of it. Now, bear in mind, at this point, I had a passing familiarity with R2P and virtually no familiarity with humanitarian intervention. So I went and met him over dinner at a New York restaurant, and then there was an interview between me and a group of people, including Gareth. At the end of the day, I decided that a job that was largely administrative, including including liaising with the United Nations and participating in an endless series of conferences, no matter how worthy the cause, was not my cup of tea, and I I declined the, uh, the position. I didn't take it. But it got me interested in this. I thought, well, I've got to find out more about R2P and humanitarian intervention. And so we arrive at the point of your question, this mountain of literature that existed. And if you think it was daunting uh, now, it was pretty daunting even back then. So I'm talking about 2014 or so when I began researching and writing this, this book. But I have to say that Although it's vast and people disagree, I found it to be very much consensus-bound. And there's a part of my personality that when I see a consensus, I'm interested in really finding out whether it's wrong. Because I've seen such consensus before, and I've even been part of such consensus, and they've proven to be unable to hold up. And the consensus was basically that this was an urgent moral problem, i.e., mass across these written states, that there was something called the international community, and that it was possible to redefine sovereignty so that it didn't mean any longer the legal prohibition against outsiders interfering in the external. Affairs of states, particularly going to war for them. War remained defensible only as a response to aggression. But humanitarian intervention and responsibility to protect said, response, sovereignty doesn't mean just immunity for governments. Sovereignty is also a way to enhance the life of people. Otherwise, what is it for? And so one of the basic aspects of sovereignty, along with immunity, is the responsibility to protect the people that you govern. And so what happens when a state refuses to do that? Well, during the Cold War, there was a very different attitude toward humanitarian intervention. By the way, the phrase never existed. So you'll remember that in 1971, when India intervened in what is now Bangladesh and what is what was then East Pakistan, to put down a um, army crackdown in East Pakistan that led to huge numbers of refugees coming into uh, India's West Bengal, the adjoining state. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that everybody stood up and clapped and said, oh, aren't the Indians wonderful people for having rescued these poor refugees and intervened and enabled them to go back. India was roundly condemned by China, by the United States, by every country I can think of except for the Soviet. Union. 1975-78, the Pol Pot regime in Cambodia killed about 2 million people, about a quarter of the population Vietnam intervened, not necessarily for humanitarian purposes. There were problems between Cambodia aligned with China and Vietnam aligned with the Soviet Union, but it brought down the Pol Pot regime. Again, nobody said, it's so wonderful that the Cambodians, have been rescued by the Vietnamese. The Vietnamese were condemned for aggression and the violation itself. One final example, 1979, when Ugandan forces after border skirmishes, I'm sorry, Tanzanian forces after border skirmishes with Idi Amin's Uganda intervened in Uganda, and led, that led to the fall of Amin's brutal government. The condemnation was not that severe because Julius Nairiri was a much-beloved person in Africa and elsewhere. But nobody said this was a wonderful thing. So there was a very different attitude toward countries crossing borders to put an end to atrocities during the Cold War. Post-Cold War, because of the end of history, enthusiasm of globalization, the unipolar world, it all it all changes. And so uh, the, the, the attempt to rethink sovereignty is an essential component of it. So the premise of almost every book that is written about humanitarian intervention, except on the critical side, is sovereignty needs to be reconsidered now. And sovereignty means responsibility. And when that responsibility at its most elemental level, that is the protection by the government of its own people is not discharged, there is the right to, interve- uh, to intervention.
2: Absolutely, Professor, and, and of course we—I think it—it it, um, we'd be remiss not to note that it was changed from right um, to responsibility to uh, because of the sovereignty issue. And I believe that the right. book um, illustrates, I think, what other humanitarian scholars have essentially turned a blind eye to the the track record, the examples that you gave us, and the nature of states who occupy the B five and. As much as we'd like to talk about the uh, quote unquote international community, a topic we will come back to, the Security Council is ultimately the only power dynamic that matters because even if there was um, some other uh, multilateral group that was responsible for humanitarian interventions, the P5 is too powerful and probably veto any of their actions, even if they're not part of it. So I think the question I'd like to ask is it's. The clarity in your book is uh, phenomenal. And do you think that some of the work you've done on the Soviet states, as like the grounding academic work, has made you see things more clearly than perhaps other scholars?
1: The Cold War was a brutal contest between two military blocs, but above all, between the United States and the Soviet Union. There's a lot of use of military force, a lot of dealing with unsavory regimes, a lot of propping up of regimes that by any standard of liberalism would not have passed the test, not just by the Soviet Union, but by the United States itself. If you look at some of the companies that the United States kept during the Cold War, Exhibit A is Suharto's Indonesia, which in 1965 slaughtered 500 million people as part of a crackdown on the PKI, the Communist Party of Indonesia. So there was a brutality of power politics that in many ways upheld the realist perspective on international relations, which is that power struggles among states are unavoidable, and that while morality ought ideally to play a role in politics, It's almost always sifted through the exigencies of national interests and power and very often corrupted by it. And I am and was a a self-confessed realist of a sort. The the thinker that's had the most influence on my view is actually a theologian named Reinhold Niebuhr, who is a public figure and a major influence on American foreign policy. Thinking in the 1940s, 50s, and and 60s, so I did come to the post Cold War to a uh, post Cold War period with this realism intact. So I was much less confident that liberalism had triumph, that there wouldn't be a resistance resistance against it. That the attempt to redefine sovereignty would not achieve a blowback. That countries might profess certain ideas, but would either be unable to enact them, or would simply betray them. So I, I will confess to having, after reading enough of the humanitarian intervention literature, found it, and I don't mean this in an uncharitable way, but very idealistic and almost unmoored from the, the brutality and the, and the cynicism and the selfishness that pervades much of international politics. It seemed to be a doctrine that was pointing to an important problem, but had not really asked the question, well, how do you make it work in a world such as the one we live in? So to that extent, the answer to your question, did my work in the Soviet period influence my perspective? Yes, I did come at it from a particular standpoint by virtue of the lessons that I had learned during the Cold War.
2: Thank you for that insight. Um, Pivoting a little bit here, a question that I think I ask all scholars, um, contrarian or otherwise, is what's the criterion for a successful intervention? Because um, I feel like we should um, sort of attack this question from both sides, both assumptions and outcomes. So um, starting from the latter, what, what is the criterion for a successful intervention? And if you had to um, uh, say which was the most successful so far, which one would that be?
1: Right. So I, I want to make clear that critics of humanitarian intervention, so another person whom, whose work you know well, Alan Cooperman, this work has had a great deal of influence um, on my own thinking, They're not necessarily saying if a government slaughters its people, well, that's the government's business and everybody else should look the other way. They're they're not saying that humanitarian intervention as an idea or as an ethical or normative commitment is a bad thing. They're pointing to the difficulties of making it work. Now, can it be successful? So critical of humanitarian intervention can say, yes, you can have a successful intervention. So what would be the criteria? The first is to identify the problem very early. The second is to take steps that are decisive enough to communicate to the side that is perpetrating atrocities, that there is a will to act and overcome its resistance. The third, if it ends up in military intervention, humanitarian intervention doesn't mean just military intervention, to have forces that are robust enough to break through the resistance and achieve the mission. And then to have a clear mission. What should it be? What is the goal? And when is it time to leave? So if you use these criteria, my candidate for the most successful one is called Operation Provide Comfort, which happened after the 1990 Gulf War. You will remember that during the Gulf War, when Saddam in, intervened in Kuwait and the UN-blessed American-led coalition, including some Arab states, pushed him out of Kuwait. Two groups that had, been, that, that had been disaffected by Saddam's Sunni-dominated government, the Shia in the south and the Kurds in the north rebelled. And Saddam's reaction, as was typical of him, was brutal. In the case of the Kurds, there was another round of bloodletting. There have been constant battles between Saddam and the Kurds during Saddam's long years in office. And the Iraqi army cracked down. And hundreds of thousands of Kurds were displaced and fled in the winter into the mountains on the other side of Turkey, some going into Turkey. They lacked food. They lacked blankets. They lacked even the most basic things to survive. And so the UN Security Council met and authorized under Resolution 678 an intervention which was to protect the Kurdish civilians from attack by the Iraqi army. The British, the French, the United States, and others put down a no-fly zone, so Saddam was told, if you send in warplanes or helicopters into northern Iraq, above a certain parallel, we'll shoot them down. And Personnel were put down on the ground to deliver humanitarian aid, and the Kurds were able to come back because A, they had the means of sustenance now, and B, a guarantee that the Iraqi army wouldn't massacre them. And then the intervention wound down. And I would say that that was a necessary and successful intervention. There was no attempt at regime change. There was no attempt to democratize Iraq. There was a very specific response launched very quickly with fairly impressive means and a consensus that included the imprimatur of the Security Council so that it was seen in most parts of the world as legitimate. I would say that although you can have humanitarian intervention work under those conditions, those conditions all rarely come together, which is one of the problems with the entire enterprise. So in principle, it can be done the ethical claim for doing it is on balance of sound one. I mean, who would say that people being massacred by the hundreds of thousands by a government uh, have no rights and simply um, have forfeited their rights not to be killed? So I I would, the the answer to your question about which is the most successful one would be Operation Provide Comfort, which happened at the tail end of the, the Gulf War.
2: Um, Absolutely. That's a very convincing answer, Professor, because, like, it's not a protracted war, there aren't construction costs, and ultimately, there are no boots on the ground. So I I think we can say here that the costs kind of become the heart of the debate, especially among international publics. So, and and we have questions like, should we, uh, should our soldiers die protecting strangers? Or when does intervention end? Who is going to ensure the peace once you leave, and then do you intervene again? So uh, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, how does your book tackle the question of long-term costs of of intervention? And although you say that the uh, intention of the book is not to get states to permanently turn a blind eye, but rather is an expose of um, the existing narrative and its advocates, I think you also go to the extent uh, that not many other authors have dared to, and if you don't mind me saying, calling them dangerous elements in the whole enterprise. So like, can you tell us a little bit more about these unintended consequences of the narrative and the long-term costs and, and that side of things?
1: Right. So let me address, if I could, the first part of your question contains two parts. One is, should... The soldiers of say the united states and france and britain die and i raise these because these are really the only countries that can actually sustain a, a protracted military intervention above all the united states without it, it it simply won't work should those soldiers die in the protection of strangers and i use the word strangers only because uh nicholas wheeler wrote a book on humanitarian intervention advocating it called Saving Strangers. So that's one part of your question. The other part is unintended consequences. So let me break your question down to two. As for soldiers dying on behalf of strangers, in the literature on humanitarian intervention, I think the answer to this, even if it isn't said in so many words, is yes, absolutely. Because there's an ethical imperative. Some ethical imperatives are so powerful, that one must be prepared to lose lives in the course of defending them. Michael Walzer, in writing about, about humanitarian intervention, at one point says, American soldiers are not Boy Scouts or members of NGOs. They are taught and trained to fight and it's necessarily die in battle now. I'm paraphrasing it. I'm not trying the exact quote. And he said, if there's a humanitarian intervention and bringing it to an end expeditiously requires the loss of the American soldiers' lives, then that is something for which they have been trained and prepared. Well, to be honest with you, I find that <laughs> very comforting for a professor from the lovely campus of Princeton University to be advocating that. But you have to look at it from two different standpoints. One is, do American soldiers sign up to advance sweeping idealistic norms that may be, in some sense, unmoored from the concrete interests of the United States? One. how much support is there in the body politics, that body politic—that that is among American citizens, French, British citizens, to really see large numbers of their troops die in rescue missions? I submit to you that I think most American troops will regard, regard war as a war undertaking for the defense of the country, broadly defined, not in terms of direct attack, but in other ways, defense of allies, protecting critical parts of the world and so on. And that while they may in some broad sense subscribe to the notion that tyranny ought not to be allowed, I don't think that they signed up for this new global mission of, of humanitarian intervention. But more importantly, I don't think the American public has the stomach to see large numbers of, you'll forgive the expression, body bags coming home after emissions like this. Now, how do I know this? If you look at the interventions that have been carried out, they have all been carried out from the air. So let's take the Kosovo mission, which, by the way, was done outside the United Nations, unilaterally by NATO, and became very controversial. And therefore, one example of how the stars might not align, as in the Operation Provide comfort example I raised, Many, many more people died during the 67-day intervention in Kosovo in 1999 than had died before, because once the airstrikes began, and there were only airstrikes, the Serbs ramped up their counterinsurgency in Kosovo, displaced many more people to neighboring countries or within Kosovo itself, and killed many more people. But for 67 days, NATO waged not only an air war, but an air war in which pilots were told to fly from high altitude so that the risk to them would be zero. Now, this to me is very telling. So here is an ethical principle on which you believe you must go to war because it's so important. But over a 67-day period, you see spinning out of control the atrocities. And you don't take the action that's necessary. So at one point, the commander of the American uh, NATO forces, General Wesley Clark, asked Clinton if he could send in helicopters because the airstrikes were not doing the job. Helicopters would be more able to take out Serb armor, but they would have to fly lower. And President Clinton said no. Now, why did he say no? Because he'd learned from the intervention in Somalia, which was done for very different reasons, that led to the famous black hawk down movie about which your listeners may know um certain american special forces were killed in somalia in a brutal way and clinton immediately pulled soldiers out because he didn't think that there would be much support in the united states for getting involved in a country and getting soldiers killed so he was german to to launch what elliot Cohen. at Johns Hopkins University at one point, called an immaculate intervention. That is, an intervention with almost zero costs. So I think that if you put the proposition to the test, imagine an intervention in which there was significant amounts of American casualties, and it looked like this was going to be a protracted war because you'd run up against an adversary that had some minimal capacity to really be damaged to intervening forces. I'm not convinced that there is a great deal of support for the, for humanitarian intervention in the body politic. And at the end of the day, you cannot launch military campaigns at the front that have no support in the rear. This is the great lesson of Vietnam, for example, the Vietnam War. So uh, the answer to your question is: I think that these two things, whether soldiers should die and whether that is part of their mission, and whether there is public support. These questions haven't been looked at hard enough by proponents of humanitarian intervention. They they assume because of the passionate attachment to the ideal that the answer is yes. But I think that proposition hasn't been tested. And I think there's room for skepticism. Public opinion polls done in Europe, by the way, show that there is actually very little support if you ask the question. Would you mount a rescue operation? If the costs were very significant and a large number of your soldiers would die in the process of the, of the intervention. Uh, one other thing, you can't really have an intervention, at least one that's distant, without the participation of the United States. So humanitarian intervention ultimately, I would say, boils it down to a one-person enterprise with others participating to give it some patina of multilateralism. So this is a classic example where The proponents of humanitarian intervention haven't filtered the enterprise through the brutal and unforgiving realities of power politics, nor taken into account whether the ideals that they profess have as much purchase among the average man and woman, who is after all also the voter.
2: Absolutely, Professor, I agree with you there. I think your debate with Walzer and Wheeler was one of my favorite parts of the book. And coming back to the advocates of humanitarian intervention, and you do say that sometimes they can be dangerous elements to the enterprise itself. Could you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Uh, yeah, so you know, there are two dangers. One is that you cannot always count on intervening in an atmosphere that's clean, where friends and foe, good and evil, are clear. An example is the Syrian civil war. On the one hand, of course, there's no question that the Assad government has been involved in a campaign of brutality against its people, but there are a whole host of opposition forces, some of which... The West would find ideologically compatible, others not. It's a messy civil war. Very quickly, the Iranians and the Russians got involved. Putting down an interventionary force, although some people called for it in that kind of atmosphere, it would be a very, very messy enterprise indeed. And I'm glad that we didn't do it. Not that I don't have enormous sympathy for what has happened to the people of, of, of Syria. So what does the atmosphere look like? The second is, what is the capacity of the state that you are targeting to not defeat you, but to make you bleed and die in numbers that might create a reaction at home? So, for example, even in Kosovo, although the intervention was done at 25,000 feet, nobody thought that the war would last 67 days. In Libya, it took close to nine months to defeat the ragtag army of Muammar, Muammar Gaddafi. So the first question is, do you know what you're getting getting into? And the second is, do you know what comes after the mission is achieved? So if you, for example, in the course of intervening, whether by design or default, destroy the regime, uh, what next? So there are two contrasting models here. One where it was done reasonably correctly, that is post-intervention, and one where it was done abysmally badly, or done not at all. So in Kosovo and Bosnia, there were substantial tens of thousands, up to 60,000 in Kosovo and Bosnia, roughly speaking. Troops uh, from NATO and the EU put down on the ground to maintain the peace. And in Bosnia, you had a high representative from the Outside, I think appointed by the EU, who had carte blanche, complete leeway to hire, fire, and run the country, almost like a colonial viceroy. So it tells you that if you want to keep the post-war peace and prevent it from disintegrating to total bloodshed, you had been, you had better be prepared to have a very robust plan for keeping the post-war peace and staying there for a long time. So in Bosnia and Kosovo. These forces remain for a very, very long time. The opposite case is Libya, which, by the way, I think is the high-water mark of humanitarian intervention. I think it was a cold shower of reality for even those who were proponents of intervening in Libya. Now, what has happened in Libya? Gaddafi was overthrown. And what has happened there since is you have two governments, one in Tripoli, one in Benghazi, each claiming to be the rightful government. You have an ex-Qaddafi general, General Khalifa Haftar, claiming to be the person who really ought to um, be the ruler of Libya and not answerable to really either government and even to the government of the East, to which is nominally aligned. You have a multitude of militias who answer to nobody but themselves. You have ISIS. You have Al-Qaeda you have refugees fleeing Libya going across the waters and dying because the voyage is often made in makeshift boats trying to reach Greece and Italy you have the entire Maghreb northeast northern Africa destabilized by what has happened in Libya it has been a colossal disaster and I don't think enough attention was was given to what comes after Gaddafi. One other thing about the Libyan war, as you well know, the the goal was, as the authorization of Resolution 1973 in March 2011 was to protect civilians, and the war became discredited very quickly. The Chinese and the Russians who abstained from the resolution, the Indians, the South Africans, the Brazilians, the all became critical because humanitarian intervention had shown a kind of not-so-savory side of it itself. That is, an intervention launched for humanitarian purposes could morph into an instrument of regime change. And the worry that humanitarian intervention would be used by powerful states to, as an ancillary to their foreign policy interests has, had always been a great concern, especially to the countries quote, of the global south. And so there are two examples here. What happened in the Balkans post-war? Pretty good, I would say. And what happened in Libya? I would give it a failing grade. If there was a grade below an F, I would give it that. Even the most passionate defenders of of the Libyan intervention, including President Obama, who said, it's the one thing I wish I hadn't done, uh, would not defend it.
2: Yeah, and... Speaking of unintended consequences, um, academics like Alan Cooperman, we have him saying, and I'd like to hear your perspective on this and how much merit this argument really has, that the interventionist narrative that we're putting out there could have negative incentives, um, that it could possibly encourage rebellious behavior in hopes of garnering international attention on those oppressed publics. Do you think that's a reality? Do you think there's any merit to that argument?
1: So I think Alan makes a very, very convincing case. And again, his work I found extremely useful in in my own work. So let's take an example, which was what happened in the Balkans. So between 1992, thereabouts, and 95, that is the year of the intervention, 95, Huge numbers of Bosnians and and Croats were killed by Serb, um, Bosnian Serb forces. And the world essentially stood by because the so-called peacekeeping mission that had been put on in Bosnia, UNPRO-4, was singularly unsuited to defending Bosnians. It allowed safe area after safe area to be overrun in Srebrenica, it disgraced itself by allowing 7,000 young Muslim men and boys to be killed. But in ninety-five, finally, there was uh, an intervention. And then came the Kosovo War of 1999. There's a direct relationship between what happened in Bosnia in 1995, the intervention, and what happened in Kosovo. Because in Kosovo, the disenchantment with Serb rule, and the Serbs have a lot to answer for, for abolishing the autonomous status of Kosovo as a province within Serbia. Milošević didn't have the then ruler of Serbia, and, and then kind of squashing the self-determination desires of the Kosovo people. The rebellion against the the Serb forces had been led by one Ibrahim Rugova, who was known as the Balkan Gandhi. He said, we will build our own parallel structures, our schools, our courts, our administrative services. We'll pretend that the Serbs don't exist, but we will not go to war against them on grounds of nonviolence. But also because, like Gandhi, um, Rugova realized that it would be no contest if they decided to fight the Serb forces. But after 1995, another group came on the scene called the Kosovo Liberation Army, and they had a very different conception. That is, the way to an independent Kosovo, because that was what the game was all about, was through warfare. They would launch an armed rebellion. And while they wouldn't win it, a crackdown, an overreaction by the Serbs, and the consequent loss of civilian lives would, after the shame of Bosnia, lead NATO to act. So in 1998, you had a ratcheting up of Kosovo, uh, of military operations by the KLA against Serb forces. The Serbs cracked down. There was a large displacement of civilians and large killing of civilians, although the numbers were about 1,500. Not that that's a trivial number, but it was not some some massive bloodbath. But the KLA decided, you know, once the bloodshed begins, it'll make it onto the front page of the New York Times, or the Times of London, or CNN, or the BBC, and that is how you, in effect, almost instigate an intervention. And I think Cooperman points to this as moral hazard. Do interventions lead? disgruntled minorities, some of whom who are being oppressed, do they lead them to the conclusion that the way to salvation is to almost make it impossible for outside forces not to intervene because your actions against the government that you're rebelling against have led to brutal crackdowns? So this is what's known as moral hazard, unintended consequences states that are behaving in a certain way in order to get you to act to to rescue them. That might not be your in, in intention for that to happen, but it does it does happen. The same thing in Libya, by the way. Once the intervention began, uh, and even before it, the Libyan opposition, we know now, pumped up enormously the casualty figures. There were huge numbers being turned, turned around, 30,000, 40,000, 50,000. One American official said if Gaddafi's forces go into Benghazi, uh, 100,000 people would die, just figures pulled out of thin air. The belief that the, the rebellion against Qaddafi was completely peaceful, we know that that, was, that is not true any longer. That Qaddafi was deliberately training heavy equipment on civilians, whereas, in fact, he was fighting insurgents who had taken over uh, cities in the course of which civilians were killed. But once the intervention began, Qaddafi repeatedly called for ceasefires and negotiations. Now, one might say, well, he, he was lying. But the proposition was never tested because once the intervention began, the transitional authority in Libya, that is the opposition coalition, spurned these offers of negotiations outright because the intervention meant they were interested only in one thing, and that was not ending the slaughter of civilians, but getting rid of the government of Libya, that is, getting rid of Gaddafi. So that, too, was an an, unintended consequence. Also, I have to add a caveat that even before the intervention began, um, the British Prime Minister and maybe even the American government itself had concluded that Gaddafi had to leave. Um, That was never part of any resolution authorized by the UN. But so these these are two examples, Libya and Kosovo, of of what uh, Cooperman calls moral hazard.
2: Right. Um, That's a scary thought for the future because we know that the track record and intervention isn't nearly that universal. Um, Coming back to the present, we have a U.S. experiencing what I can only describe as an identity crisis. (laughs) While on one hand, we have the U.S. State Department issuing reports on how to meet the China challenge On the other, we have a public that is uninterested uh, more than ever in policing the world, or even, uh, if I may say, maintaining the liberal world order. Um, And seeing as that some people compare the US-China competition to the Cold War era, how do you think the public atmosphere is different um, to what it was then? And what does this mean for human rights and the intervention agenda?
1: Right. So there are several changes that have gone on. One is the legacy of Libya. And I think that's had a sobering effect on even the proponents of humanitarian intervention. And it certainly has made the critics say, but not with any glee, I told you so. One hears much less about the responsibility to protect now. And I think that whole enterprise has reached the high watermark. But, and you're quite correct, that domestically, because of the pandemic, because of the angst about the future of democracy in the United States, because of the toll that the pandemic has taken in Europe, there is going to be an inward facing tendency by the public, not isolationism. Isolationism, disengagement from the world doesn't have very much support among the Americans. But I think The whole business of rescue and humanitarian intervention, I think the Biden administration, even though it has within its ranks some people who are very fond of humanitarian intervention, I think that they will have their plate filled with the urgent, pressing domestic matters that will get their attention focused on internal affairs. That doesn't mean there won't be a foreign policy. We have a State Department, we have a Defense Department, we have a Central Intelligence Agency. U.S. Information Agency, USAID, and so on. But I think that while there'll be, a, there'll be engagement with the world, I think humanitarian intervention a la the period from 1995 to 2011, I think there is going to be much less of an emphasis on that by the Biden administration that's philosophically, though, um, inclined to be favorably disposed toward it. And one other point, if I might, there is a shift in the balance of power occurring, you alluded to it, the rise of China, but also the kind of quasi-alignment between Russia and China, two governments that have never been friendly toward the humanitarian intervention enterprise. And I can't imagine an intervention proposal getting to the Security Council, because I think the Chinese and the Russians, especially in the wake of the Libya intervention, that they remember morph into regime change, that they will allow it to happen, which then leads to the question of, well, whether there will be a unilateral intervention by NATO. But the problem with that is that essentially the only country with the forces needed to launch and sustain, as we saw in Libya, a military intervention over as prolonged period as the United States. At one stage in the Libya intervention, the U.S. handed over responsibility to NATO, but they ran out of ammunition. They couldn't do aerial refueling they were, were, were uh, reliant on the United States for all manner of back-end support. So if you add all those conditions together in light of the question you posed, I think it's a completely new environment in which the proponents of humanitarian intervention have to work, and it's a much less favorable environment for their enterprise.
2: Right. And I, and I think you also note in the book um, that although the United States has repeatedly encouraged the the NATO members to increase their defense expenditure, they haven't really done anything about that. And so possibly um, the Russia-China alliance could be militarily um, more than um, sufficient to meet the U.S. challenge. But I think on the flip side, um, when we think about the recent literature and Graham uh, Allison's UCDD's strap um i I'd, I'd like to ask um a, a rather uh, skeptical question but um i think it, it it it's important to ask that is it possible that in an effort to maybe meet china before the united states even has to or before it's in a weaker position possibly that it could use Um, this quote-unquote righteous reason of humanitarian intervention, say what's happening to the Uyghurs, to start a war with China, is that anywhere in the realm of possibility?
1: I would say that there's zero possibility of that happening. One of the things about humanitarian intervention is, and it's very selective, right? And by definition, it has to be. So if you're a great power and you are oppressing your people, Russia in Chechnya, China in Tibet and And uh, Xinjiang, you spoke of the Uyghurs. There's going to be no intervention against you. No proponent of humanitarian intervention would say you have to intervene and save strangers at the risk of creating World War II. So that's that's off the table. The Chinese have made it clear that they won't even welcome verbal criticism, and they will never allow an intervention on their soil. And any attempt to do that would be. A proposition that if discussed seriously by any government would never get off the table. And if it were attempted, it would be highly dangerous. A clash between the United States and China is conceivable for other reasons. We must all hope it doesn't happen, but not as a result of some effort to, to intervene in, in a rescue operation to save Uyghurs or Tibetans and other groups in China. I think there's no chance of that happening. And if the United States wanted to say, well, we want to nip China in the bud before it becomes more powerful, there are other ways to do it. I think it would be unadvisable to do it, but there are other ways to do it than trying to intervene in Xinjiang.
2: Right. And so, so in that case, do you think that there, uh, what do you think is the most probable cause should they come to butt heads? Um, Like, because we have the unique case of Taiwan and Hong Kong, we have the South China Sea and just so many points of contention. So, um, and economically, I feel like China is trapping these countries with its infamous debt traps economically without um, the PLA ever getting involved. So, I feel like it's, it's a completely different playground. So, how would the US, I mean, of course, this is what every scholar right now in international relations is talking about. But I'd still be remiss not to ask you how and at what point would we come to maybe something being the last straw in the game?
1: I am not worried about a global clash between the United States and China that spans the entire globe. I'm much more worried about a war that nobody wanted that that occurs because of miscommunication. Not over the South China Sea at large, because I don't think the Chinese are going to go to war for those islands in which they've built up military bastions, nor will the U.S. go to war to challenge them on those islands that are disputed. But it is Taiwan, because if the Chinese conclude, as they are rapidly doing, and we already have, that a peaceful reunification with Taiwan is impossible. I have no doubt that at some stage they are prepared to use military power. and I also have no doubt that compared to the 1990s, their capacity to take Taiwan and to impose huge costs on a defender, that is the United States, would be enormous. So were I Taiwanese, and I say this as somebody who's been to Taiwan many times and in many ways I'm an admirer of what the Taiwanese have achieved, truly admirable politically and economically. I think the idea that the United States would actually go to war to save Taiwan has become because the balance of forces an iffy proposition. But there is no question that that is an issue that is extraordinarily important to the Chinese. Taiwan has been out of their control since uh, 1895 when the Japanese took it, and then it was handed over to the, uh, the government of Chiang Kai-shek that lost the civil war against the communists. The Chinese have never believed that Taiwan is anything but a part of China. And in Taiwan, increasingly the sentiment, certainly when I was there last, not long ago, a year or two ago, is in favor of, if not declaring independence, that they wouldn't do because it would be too provocative. A future completely outside China. The more they see internal repression in China, the more they see the direction of the Chinese, the less they want to be part of it. And they want to keep their democracy and their successful economy, which have, which are both admirable. But the Chinese are determined at unification. It is the touchstone for Chinese nationalism, which in many ways has replaced Maoism and Marxist-Leninism as the, as the binding ideology in China. And so there used to be just an asymmetry of will, that is, the Chinese were more determined to reunify with Taiwan uh, than we were to protect Taiwan, but that didn't matter because we had the military advantage. Now there's an asymmetry of will and a rising asymmetry of capability, that is, the Chinese now are in a position to, to wreak substantial damage on American forces maybe 10 or 15 years out to even overcome them. And I don't think they're going to invade Taiwan lightly or even imminently. But sometimes things happen that nobody anticipated would happen. What if the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, seized an offshore island, an island offshore, offshore of Taiwan, the Pratas Islands, just to the south, an island that nobody has really ever heard of. What would be the American reaction there? Would that be a test of American will? So I would say, if I were to look to one place as a flashpoint, it would be Taiwan, not the, not not globally and not the South China Sea generally, but Taiwan.
2: Right, right. That's that's incredibly insightful. Um, thank you for that answer. And um, it seems that we've taken up a lot of your time. I'd like to ask you one last question before we let you go. And if I may. What are you working on right now?
1: <laughs> I'm working on two books. You know, Mother Russia always tugs you back into her arms. So I'm working on a book with a friend of mine, Eugene Rumer, uh, with whom I wrote a book on Ukraine called Russia After Putin. And it won't have much to do with Putin, but it will be what kind of country will Russia become in, over the next 15 years? Uh, what can we expect from it? economically, politically, militarily, uh, sociologically. And it's a little bit of a crystal ball-gazing enterprise, but that's something we're were working on. We have a contract with Oxford University Press. Then there's a book that I've been planning to write for many years and I've never really had the time to sit down and do it, and that's called Hubris, colon, The Anatomy of Military Disaster. That is to look at wars that have ended catastrophically for the initiator but went beyond military defeat to ultimately lead to the collapse of the regime itself. So various examples, the Greek expedition to Sicily during the Peloponnesian War in 415, the um, the jump centuries, Operation Barbarossa, Hitler's attack on uh, the Soviet Union, uh, Pearl Harbor, uh, wars like that, because they all have in common the expectation of quick victory, the inability to imagine that the war would be protracted, let alone that it would be a catastrophic disaster, and nevertheless the plunging into it with with complete exuberance. So I'm interested in figuring out what the decision-making process has been in wars like this and what led people who were fairly able and smart people to make this mistake uh, repeatedly over and over again.
2: Rajan, that sounds like absolutely fascinating project. They both do. And I really look forward to reading them. I want to thank you for being on the show today. I think we all learned so, so much. So thank you and take care.
1: Thank you, Mehta. If it's been successful, partly because of your questions, So it's very nice to talk to you and all the best to you.